welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strink. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. With all the attention the lab has gotten over the last year and a half, we've also heard a lot about the regulatory aspect of lab testing and why it's important for quality results. My guest today is Dr. Stephanie Stallis. Dr. Stallis has made a career out of keeping labs in compliance with her company, Blood Associates. Today, we'll talk about how she got into the field, her work with Blood Associates, and some practical examples of things that can happen. All right, here's Dr. Stephanie Stallis. I'd like to start these off with kind of going through kind of the background education to get an idea of where people started and then kind of how they got to where they are. So for you, you started with the BS uh, uh, in biology and then the the master's in cellular and molecular biology. So now at this time, was medical school on the horizon for you? What was kind of your idea of your future plans at that time? Yeah, so... It's very natural for people who are contemplating a field, a uh, career in medicine to, to do that, do the biology and maybe even do something past the baccalaureate, and, which is what I did. And truth of the matter is I did not get into medical school my first time around. So I decided to explore you know, other things out there, cellular molecular biology being one of those things. And what had propelled me into medicine in the first place, like one of your other podcast guests, Lori Marini, is that like her, I also experienced a challenging illness, not cancer, but in overcoming that illness, it helped me to connect to the patient side of thing and also created the desire in me to want to help others combat disease. That's a good motivator. I've heard from several people that they had some kind of either experience of their own or some sort of family experience that kind of led them in that direction. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 All right. Now, one thing I do want to talk about as far as your education was you you did graduate studies in molecular pharmacology. And I want to talk about this because this is an area I haven't covered yet uh, on the podcast. And it, you know, I did some reading about it. It sounds interesting. So first, can we kind of define that? What is molecular pharmacology? Okay, well, it's a mouthful, so I'll do my best to describe it. And basically, uh, what it is, is that it is the branch of science that tries to identify and optimize how medical compounds interact with the cellular target, you know, using kinetics, uh, so pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics, those descriptors of how medicines interact with cellular targets. And in this case, we're talking about basically like a receptor level. So you can look at how novel compounds that are not, that are, you know, baby medicines, they haven't made their way all the way through FDA approval process yet. And you're trying to look for how this compound interacts with a receptor target. Does it even bind? And if it binds, how strongly it binds? And if it strongly binds, what inner processes happen? And so that's what molecular pharmacology is. Was this sort of an extension of the cellular and molecular biology? Is that how you became interested in molecular pharmacology? Or was there some other reason that you went into this area? Yeah, I did find it to be a good extension of cellular molecular biology. 
But let's be real here. I did not get into medical school first time around. And so I pursued other things and I did not get into medical school second time around. So I pursued molecular pharmacology. <laughs> okay. I see. Now this seems like more of a, um, like a research type of area, like research science rather than clinical medicine. I mean, and now, so this is at the time you're applying to medical schools. Were you ever kind of tempted to not go to medical school and just pursue like a research career? Yes, um, I was tempted because it takes a lot of uh, effort and my hats off to people who are in the research field because I know firsthand it takes a lot of uh, effort and time to to go through that process, much mm -hmm. less when you're out in the working world, so to speak. You have to apply for grants, do experiments. And by the way, nature doesn't always agree or cooperate with you. So sometimes you have to try different things or you magically you know, discover things that you weren't expecting. But yes, I did think about going that route. And there was a time in my molecular pharmacology study, I was studying um, yeah, not yet you know, FDA approved drugs, but compounds, in, in innovative compounds that would um, bind as agonists to dopamine receptors. I was studying that at one time and there was this, I forgot exactly what happened, but there was a kind of a downtime in the experiments and this was a good ways in. So I decided at that time, I, if I ever wanted to go, you know, go into medicine, this seemed like a good time. And I achieved everything and got what's called an all but dissertation on the PhD mm. path. And it, I, I did get in and now is now. <laughs> so you get into medical school. Now, was pathology of interest to you right, right away from the beginning? It was not, uh, it was not uninteresting to me, but it was not, uh, there was another contender for where I might want to go into medicine. And uh, that was surgery. And okay. I like surgery, and, and this might have influenced you as well. I don't know for, you know, uh, pathology, but there's a lot of procedures in pathology as there are in surgery. So as I got further down my uh, medical school and I contemplated different things, one, what is your interest? But usually people have several interests, but you also have to be honest with yourself what kind of lifestyle do you want? And yeah. I saw long hours of standing, uh, the good old boys club of surgery. And I, I didn't want to go down the, that path, nothing to do with uh, how interesting surgery is, but I just, I didn't want to go down that path. So I think mm -hmm. pathology. <laughs> okay. You, you are not the first person to tell me that very thing as a matter oh, of fact. Oh, really? Okay. Yep. Yep. I, I kind of like to hear like, what was your, what was your first experience? Like, how were you exposed to pathology? Uh, you know, what was your first experience with it? Because that's different for different people. Yeah. So you mean in medical school, what was my, yeah. yeah like for a, a lot of people, you know, there's a, there's a lecture maybe. And, you know, the, the, the person that was giving the lecture, the, probably a pathologist was very inspiring or for other people, maybe they, uh, happened to go to an interest group or something like that and were exposed to it that way. 
Yeah. Okay. So um, it's good that you brought up a little bit of my educational history prior to now, because as we've talked about, I was in cellular and molecular biology uh-huh. and in molecular pharmacology prior to actually entering medical school. And those left imprints on me of really enjoying the inner machinery of the cell, so to speak, uh, in genetics, molecular, things like that. And I did very well on my step three, which at the time had a lot of molecular medicine in it at the time. And I thought, huh. So, I mean, I did all that molecular studies and I did well on that. And I kind of was thinking, what branch of medicine is going to allow me to um, use you know, that training, cellular molecular, and and it seemed obvious that it would be the diagnostics world. And so that's, that's what I went into. I kind of used that as a gauge to, okay, what should, what, you know, what branch of medicine, and I picked pathology. That makes sense. So it seems like the experience you had with these other areas before getting into medical school actually helped to sort of steer your medical school career. Yes. Yes. That's interesting. Okay. Okay. Before we get into the fellowship that you did. So I'm curious now we've, we've been talking about the educational things. Were there things outside of that? Some of the things that wouldn't be on on the CV that maybe you'd you'd like to mention that you were doing at that time. Yeah. So I actually, I tried my hand at acting, (laughs) Uh, about 30 years ago, I tried my oh, hand really? at acting. Yeah. Uh, and I was in a movie with Keanu Reeves, John Larroquette, and Barbara Hershey about 30 years ago. The name of that movie was Aunt Julia Scriptwriter, although I think they decided to change the name of the movie. And that was a really fun experience. So, oh, wow. yeah. Did you, you got to meet Keanu Reeves? I did. I did. And so I remember, well, one, I was in a scene where I was very close, close to him. Of course, I'm an extra, so uh, right. no one's paying attention to me. But, you know, I'm paying attention to him. And uh, I'll just be a woman here and say, so I, I knocked on his trailer and he came out. I was a little bit surprised he would just come out if someone knocks on his trailer. And I remember thinking, and I'm a tall woman, I'm 5'7", and I was looking at him thinking, man, this guy is tall. I didn't, ex- I mean, just from my memory, I think he's like 6'4". I don't know what the internet or something says. And then I remember, wow, he is really handsome. And I mean, he's handsome on screen, but just like some things, you know, just look different in real life than they do on a screen. Same, you know, same thing here. And I was talking to him now, and then I was thinking, wow, he's He's actually talking with me, just talking regular stuff. How are you doing? How are you enjoying this movie? Stuff like Mm -hmm. that. And so for like this um, period of time, like one or two seconds, it's like those scenes in the movie where everything else goes away. There's no sound. There's no color or anything. It's just that that person in front of you for one to two seconds. And then, of course, all these throngs of girls come over and everything. And, you know, it's just like regular. (laughs) Okay. All right. I, I just looked it up. So the, the movie, I guess they changed the name. It's called Tune In Tomorrow. Oh, Tune In Tomorrow. From okay. Ni- from 1990. Does that sound right? That sounds right. Uh, I was in college at 1988. So, okay. So my second year there. Got it. Okay. Did you, did you take acting classes? Like, how did, how did you get into this? 
Um, actually, um, I had a boyfriend at the time. He was a photographer. We were both at Tulane. That's where we were, New Orleans. And the movie, Tune In Tomorrow, something had happened to the fake set that they had built in Florida at the time. That's what we were told. There was some hurricane blew down the real set in Florida. And though, the, even though the movie is supposed to be filmed in New Orleans, they decided to build a fake New Orleans. Well, it blew down. So they had to come to the real New Orleans and they put out flyers. And my photography boyfriend said, Hey, 70, let's try to just have fun and be in that uh, you know, be extras in the movie. He was photographer, so he was going to get a benefit if if they allowed him to to take pictures of things and submit it to the school newspaper. And I was just along for the ride. And I do remember that the scenes that we were in, it was really cold. That it was sunny, but it was cold. I don't know what time of year that was. And so we had to, but the. The, the producer, the director wanted us, they, they picked out our clothes for us. We were told to wear certain clothes and there were clothes that were for warm weather. So they, you know, short shirts and stuff like that. So I want to say there was true acting going on <laughs> to not look shivering or cold while they were filming. <laughs> oh, I see. All right. Okay. <laughs> so uh, was, was this the, the end of your acting career then or, or did you go on from there? Uh, that was the end of my acting career. Yes. <laughs> okay. All right. Did you do you feel like there were any any skills or something you maybe learned about yourself that then you could you carried over into medicine? Well, uh, that's a that's a very interesting question because I'm reminded of something that the director said, and this would probably have to do with how we interface with whoever are the clients of our labs. And that, that can be pathologists, uh, physicians, uh, patients, or whoever. And I mean, we're mature, so we know how to act uh, with people. But at that time, I remember the director said, okay, when he said cut, he said, okay, you see the way you're acting right now? That's the way I want you to act when I'm actually filming. When I when I start filming, you you tend to overact and act like not like normal people. <laughs> I want you to act like normal people. Okay. So um but anyway, that's that message has stuck in my mind till now. And uh, I think it's just a a reminder how we, how important it is. Uh, for us in the lab to know that we are we are dealing with parts of people. We need to communicate with those people. They they deserve answers to their questions, and that's that's the link that I have created from that. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. The communication part is very important, and to to do it in a sort of an, a natural way. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's a good lesson. I like that. Okay, so let's kind of come back off of our tangent then. Okay. Uh, back. So, all right. So, the, so the, the fellowship then. This was in transfusion medicine. Yes. Okay. Now, where did this interest come from? Well, I hope this doesn't sound strange, but I think blood is fascinating. It's cool, okay. and it has a mysterious side to it. It has a practical side to it. It has an operational side to it, and even a foodie side to it. I'm a foodie. I hope that doesn't sound gross, and I'll, I'll explain that a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> but, we're going to have to talk about that. 
Yeah. Well, so I teach transfusion medicine um, at a medical school in Texas. And in that, I start, I have to build up into transfusion medicine. I just don't start doling out the doses of different cellular products. And I talk about the mystique of blood, has a mystique about it. It is uh, is thought to bring life to people. It's a youthful force. And we even build horror movies, vampires, and that kind of mystique around it. Mm -hmm. And it has a very practical pharmaceutical nature to it. You know, quite simply, if you're lacking something, the tendency is to want to give that back in the form of a transfusion of the product and that which you're lacking. But being in transfusion medicine, as I found when I was in the fellowship, is that it is very interesting in that it provides discussion points and ways to strengthen operational efficiencies inside a hospital system. And so the more one involves him or herself in transfusion medicine, as I found it in my fellowship, it's a really good way to, you know, try to integrate and steer different agendas of the hospital. You know, for instance, it wasn't going on at the time when I was in my fellowship about 12 years ago. But since that time, I think a lot of people recognize now the term blood management and trying to lessen or, you know, yeah, lessen or decrease the need for for the need for transfusion in the first place. And mm, so, okay. you know, and then that affects how surgeries are performed. They you know, improve their surgeries because they're going to try to decrease the um, t- the amount of bleeding and or they're going to provide medications that lessen the bleeding and, and these kinds of things. So that's just an example of how it steers into different agendas for the hospital. And then, uh, so I want to get back to the foodie part. <laughs> because okay, yeah, please, let's, let's go there. <laughs> Before I gross everybody out, if I haven't already, But on top of all those interesting dynamics about transfusion medicine, I found out when I was creating my uh, transfusion medicine PowerPoints was maybe three or four years ago, there's a product out there. There's a chocolate candy bar from Russia, and they incorporated blood into that candy bar. And the name of the candy bar is called Hematogen. So it uses blood to increase the protein content of the chocolate bar, and wait, I thought that wait, was so wait a minute, like like human blood? No, it's not human blood. It's okay. cow's okay. blood. Yes. Okay, cow's that's mar- marginally better. Yeah. <laughs> so. Wow. Okay. And so, and so the I wanted what I wanted to do is kind of like shock the medical students, which I achieved with that. Uh, you know, because I, I want them to be interested in what I'm talking about. And there's just so many ways to create interest in blood. And so that, that was the way I chose. <laughs> okay. I see. Now, uh, now, okay. Now, hopefully this isn't where your, your kind of foodie uh, ambition ends, though, right? Oh, yeah. That was another thing that I didn't mention. And when you had asked me the question about things about myself that are not on my CV. Right. You know, despite, you know, the medical side and the, you know, that needs to be honed in to, you know, clinical, I, despite that, I have a very strong domestic side. And so I love um, foodie stuff. I love cooking. And that creative side is a side of me that I didn't realize 
when I allow it to be expressed on, on, on the medical side, it helps me. I used to divide them and, you know, one's the serious side and one is the creative side. But in actuality, if you use all sides of you to in doing what you're doing and it helped me in medicine, uh, it's been very helpful. That makes a lot of sense to me, actually. I've uh, Many of the people that I've had on this podcast have some kind of creative uh, hobby or creative outlet outside of medicine, whether oh. it be, you know, you know, cooking, like you said, uh, a lot of people write books, uh, there's artists, musicians, so that, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Oh, okay. Yeah, there's a lot of creativity in pathology, I, I, I have found. Oh, okay. What's your creative side? Uh, it, it is music. I actually play a little guitar. Nice. Yeah. And actually, the the uh, transfusion medicine thing as well, I wanted to mention that pretty much everybody I've talked to that's been in clinical, like the clinical laboratory scientists that I've had on on the podcast, and I asked them, you know, which which kind of department or specialty is your favorite? And almost all of them say blood bank. Huh. Yeah, that I is think so it's, nice to hear. Yeah, it's, I think it has something to do with the... Um, because it's more like direct, I think, with the patient, and it's, you know, the the margin for error is, you know, very small, and they yes. like that sort of problem solving kind of challenge to it. That's, ah. that's what I've been told. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's good to know. Mm-hmm. This is the People with Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Stephanie Stolis. We'll be right back. LabVine is designed to integrate into the daily routine of any laboratory stakeholder and support you and your team holistically. Here are some of the features of LabVine. You can complete a skills assessment to identify your gaps and needs and be directed to resources to build those much-needed competencies. You can head over to VineStream and listen to podcasts and webinars, including this podcast. If you have problems and need mentorship in your lab but lack the in-house expertise, you can head over to the ConfLab and connect with an expert that has the solution for you. And when you have a few extra minutes, check out Vine News to stay informed on the latest international trends in lab medicine. You can follow the link in the show notes to head over to LabVine and check out these features and more. Dress a Med has been designing and manufacturing high-quality scrubs since 1980. The prices are affordable, the shipping is very fast, and the scrubs have lots of pockets, which I really like. I actually have several sets of these myself. So check out Dress a Med by using the link in the show notes. You can sign up for their loyalty program for free and earn special offers and discounts. And now back to Dr. Stephanie Stolis on the People of Pathology podcast. Then speaking of uh, kind of the lab industry, I'm curious then from from your experience and you know what what you see ha- happening in the pathology and lab industry, where where do you think it's going to go in the next say five to ten years? Oh, that's a great question, and that would um, you know I'd have to use my creative side, and I'd have to have the future me tell the current me to think about what trends are happening now or some needs happening now. I can't help but speak to the way the pandemic has accelerated things. And for the current situation, there has been a greater need to harmonize standards for labs across the globe. And I think the pandemic really promoted that. And I think the reason that it has it promoted that and is going and going to continue to grow is that 
So if we did not have a pandemic going on right now, let's say, um, and we had samples that needed to get done, but perhaps they can be done more efficiently or uh, cost efficiently outside the U.S., there might be reason then to send those samples to labs outside the U.S. And naturally, then we want standards outside the U.S. to, to match inside the U.S., uh, much less if there is a pandemic, and this really happened, let's say there's one country that has has the only lab that does a certain test that's related to the pandemic at hand, well, it's of national safety to think of ways of perhaps either getting that test in their own country or sending the specimens out to that country that has the only lab that the only one that's able to test for that particular pathogen. So I think there will be a acceleration of this harmonization between labs throughout the uh, world. And then another thing, and I alluded to it into a LinkedIn article that I titled what goes up may come down is that there is a, I believe a greater desire of the consumers, the people who are getting tests to want to have those testing platforms or services brought closer to them, be more accessible to them. And I think in that direct-to-consumer care market is going to uh, continue to grow. And then there is a, a supply chain gap going on in that there is a the dwindling amount of lab professionals who can execute lab testing, and we experienced that during the pandemic, although the dwindling amount of lab professionals was going on way before the pandemic. The pandemic just exacerbated that. And we now feel it. We now know it. And I think to respond to that, yes, to some degree, we're going to, I feel in the future, we're going to kick out, uh, have a surge in people going to becoming medical laboratory technicians and medical technologists, yes, that will happen. But I think also what will be happening and actually happened during COVID is that medical device manufacturers will cause their devices to shift down to lower complexities so that people with lesser education, less training can perform certain tests. So things that used to be using high complexity and moderate complexity devices, maybe those will be shifted down downwards to waived uh, tests, which has already been happening. But with the pandemic and with the dwindling lab professionals, I feel that's going to accelerate that even more. And there actually was a device, is a device that tested COVID PCR at a high throughput, but took into account uh, that it wouldn't need a lot of manpower to operate, fill it with samples, fill it with reagents. And so there was one manufacturer, um, not saying there's not others, but that I, who they demoed their instrument to me in a lab that took that into account. So it's not a, it's not a secret that that's also out there, and I hope that we will improve that. And then there's telepathology. Many medical specialties yeah. have found ways, yeah, to bring their work home with them, so to speak. And with pathology, that's still evolving. For anatomic pathology, in, in, uh, specifically, I'm a clinical pathologist, so I don't do that. But for anatomic pathology, because 
it's still ongoing. What kind of um, what kind of regulations are needed to enforce standard of care? It is still in its infancy to allow pathologists to read digital slides at home. It's a high complexity task, and so that's still evolving. I think there are people working on that right now, so that could be a part of our of our future. Yeah, I mean, these are all great points. I, the pandemic has. I mean, it's, it's been terrible and a lot of loss of life and, but there's, it, I think it has accelerated the rate of innovation in medicine yes. and, and particularly in the lab. I'm curious though, you, you mentioned about the, the kind of shortage or lack of lab professionals. Do you think that because of the spotlight that's been put on the lab through the pandemic, do you think that's going to entice or influence more people to to look at these careers and find that that maybe you know working in the lab might be for them yes i i definitely think that and and hope that uh, that we will be having a surge of people graduate from schools that generate you know medical lab technicians clinical laboratory scientists even clinical pathologists we're in short supply as well and the thing, though, if I can just mention what comes to mind, is that mm-hmm. this, this shouldn't happen in a haphazard way. Um, I don't think lab successes come haphazardly. And what I would like to see happen is that there is a committee or a collaboration between uh, medical lab professionals, government and training institutions so we can actually identify and aim towards a target of amount of people that need to graduate in order to supply the demand of labs because some of the numbers behind staffing labs are that for a moderate complexity lab you need at least four different types of roles and or multiples of those to by law in that lab and for a high complexity lab you need five positions and uh, multiples of that to staff a high complexity lab. So if we were all working together, uh, lab professionals, the government and training institutions, we could arrive at how much, how many and how fast do we need to generate these lab professionals to fill spots for the labs that are currently or even projected for the United States. I think that sounds very uh, common sense but i i'm not sure when that will happen <laughs> yeah, let me let me see if i understand what you're saying like there there really needs to be kind of a plan uh, yes. in, in place of how <laughs> how to how to expand and how to get more lab staff yes because let me tell you what was tried during covid and doesn't work and that is because of the lack of lab professionals but because of the increased need for COVID testing and, and such, some states chose to deal with this dilemma by relaxing the standards of people hired into clinical labs to fill those positions. One mm-hmm. of those states was California, and they hired people, they waived some of the requirements for people to work in COVID labs, and that went badly. So... There will be people who say, well, you know, we don't need all these. We don't need all these requirements. And I would say to them, yes, you do. 
yeah, there's a there's a reason why those requirements, those standards are there. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, I have a colleague who I'll mention here, Angela Tomei Robinson. She's a, a big advocate for medical technologists and clinical laboratory scientists, and sure. she advocates for them for their right to practice, just as any other healthcare professional, physician, nurse, pharmacist. All list goes on and on. You know, they have rights to practice guaranteed by their license, and she wants to see that happen for, and I want to see that happen for lab professionals, because we we can't relax our standards. It's not an attempt to, you know, create more dollars for the states to, you know, enforce certain kinds of practices, but we really need those, and, and as was shown by what happened in California. All right. Now, I, I want to talk about your your company that you started. It's called Blood Associates. Yes. Which, all right. Now, considering our the earlier part of our conversation, I think we can all guess where the name came from. Yes. <laughs> right. As far as the idea of starting this company, wh- where did that come from? Was there some sort of particular problem you saw in the lab industry that you were trying to fix with this? You know, I would like to make it sound like it was part of some greater plan. But what really happened <laughs> is that I graduated from my transfusion medicine fellowship into a very volatile economy of the of 2008. And so I was taught a lesson that much like what's going on now, where procedures had to be canceled and that meant blood products weren't need and that meant blood centers all of a sudden weren't being called on to sell their products and they had to decrease their inventory. Mm -hmm. Well, just like the pandemic is doing now, back then in 2008, same thing. That led to a layoff at the blood center I was working at, Rhode Island Blood Center. I was one of those. So I learned the lesson that physicians are not immune to market forces. And I, you know, came back to Dallas, my hometown, And I eventually networked my way into a healthcare incubator called North Texas Enterprise Center. I'm not really sure what I said to have them give me a free office as long as I did some marketing for them. (laughs) I was a little bit taken aback, like, you want me to do marketing? But in any case, they said, yeah, if you will do marketing for what you think marketing is, just, you know, do that for us. We'll give you this free office. You can work on your other time to do whatever else you you know like to do they put me on a scientific advisory board where i vetted new healthcare companies based on their executive summary and pitch deck and so i you know these things they influence you and so something that might have looked like a downturn or a disadvantage if you look at it in a different perspective actually becomes an advantage to you. So what I was doing is I was being given the tools to create my own company, which I did, Blood Associates, uh, which was more than me at one time, but has I have downsized it to myself and will scale, strategically scale again once the pandemic subsides. But basically just found, networked my way into you know, was first blood collection facilities and morphed over into contracted laboratory directorship. And, you know, now it's 11 years later. Now, I know one of the things that you do with Blood Associates 
is helping labs prepare for inspections. Yes. Uh, these like cap inspections, CLIA inspections, that kind of yeah. thing. Is that okay? Okay. And then also like performing mock inspections to prepare for those things. Yes. Yes, I do. Okay. So tell me about that. How, how did you get started doing that? First, let me say that people tend to find talking about regulations. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying anything about the question. I'm just saying people tend to find talking about regulations kind of boring and necessary and irrelevant to labs. But now that I've been in this industry for 11 years, making sure you have a compliant lab is not just this artificial machination to appease the regulatory body. It's very practical. And once I saw that to myself, I was very happy to, you know, figure out what the regulations are saying and try to incorporate that into lab. Because basically what any of the regulations are trying to do is trying to produce standard of care, uh, which is accurate and precise test results. So that's all they're about. And who wouldn't want that? So I try to picture, I imagine a scenario where a physician sends his or her patient's specimen to a lab and the, and the lab returns, let's say, a potassium of 7.0 when the normal reference range is 3.5 to 5 millimoles per liter. So it's higher than the normal reference range. And this actually happens. The phys physician calls a lab to find out if the specimen was hemolyzed to account for the hyperkalemia of the specimen. And the physician is told no. And now the physician is left with the predicament of sending their totally healthy middle-aged patient to the ER for extensive workup based on the lab test result. And I think all of us that are in the lab field no, there may have, may have been some other factors that produced a result that did not indicate the biologic condition of that patient. And so that's why I think of the regulations as something that is just very necessary for labs. We have to be accurate and precise. And many of the times, stemming a little bit away from your question about, you know, doing inspections and mock inspections, there is this kind of a shiny object fascination with labs if they have a new sexy, you know, test added to their menu, the molecular whatever, oh, sure. uh, you know, the whole genome sequence, whatever, um, you know, the, the fancy test is going to tell you how long you live or whatever. And those, those are great tests, not taking away from the test. But those tests are not done that often. There are more bread and butter tests that are done much more often. They're not the glamorous tests. They're the CBCs. They're the CMPs. Those are done much more often. And we, as a lab industry, need to find ways to achieve and maintain standard of care by being accurate and precise and also those unsexy tests. So this is what propels me in operational efficiency and helping labs with inspections is that there's only there's only a certain way to get there. You don't arrive at standard of care by accident. You arrive there by very purposeful acts. And so in any case, that's that's what I enjoy about the regulatory side of it. This kind of ties into what you were talking about earlier about uh, standardization of labs and lab tests it, globally even. 
And yes. then also, yeah. And then what you mentioned about kind of how some states were kind of relaxing those regulations during uh, the height of COVID to some pretty bad results. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. What are some other services that Blood Associates offers? I do help with the inspections, as you mentioned, and that includes the Joint Commission, CAP, COLA, FDA, CLIA. But um, I also serve as a lab director, a contracted lab director. And for the past 11 years, um, you know, I've been gaining experience and I've managed to avoid being placed on a list call, that I call the Challenge Lab, Challenge Lab Director list that CMS annually pu- publishes. And so in addition to being a contracted lab director that has managed to successfully avoid some of the pitfalls of being a lab director, um, I feel drawn to helping other d- lab directors stay off of that list. So I do now offer lab director coaching and I'm creating a video series around lab director coaching so that I can help bring value to the lab director community. I'm curious about like outside of uh, blood associates, then like what sort of other projects uh, you've got going on. I mean, you just mentioned the video series that you started. Is that, is that the the LinkedIn thing that you've been doing? Yeah. um, I've done the first video, video one, the superpower of the lab director. And I will have another video. I, I plan to do about a once a month type of thing. The, the next one, as a little sneak peek, is titled Lab Medicine is Medicine. So that's the video two. Okay. Um, and then I am on a path, secondarily, I'm on a path to reduce laboratory errors. And I mentioned earlier about the scenario where a physician sends their patient specimen to a lab and the lab returns a value that is outside the normal reference range, but the mm-hmm. physician has to act in a, in a way that is correlated to the lab test, even though the patient is healthy. Uh, they're confused. The physician is confused, but they have no choice but to do that. And so with that, I have been become more invested in how can we reduce laboratory errors and uh, medical errors, of which laboratory errors are, is the third leading cause of death as a, uh, as assigned by the leapfrog safety group. And so there needs to be a way to, you know, achieve the standard of care. And so I have been partnering with a first of its kind software service called Catalyst QC, and they are able to visually demonstrate how many medically unreliable tests are coming out of a lab and then also show the financial consequences to both the lab and the patient of those medically unreliable tests. So I think that's pretty sexy. You know, like I said, people think that, you know, what kind of test you offer is sexy, but I think how you perform your tests, that's what I think is sexy. And, and that's, this is a way in which people can, um, quantify the quality of their lab because I don't think insurance companies or patients want to pay for poorly performed lab tests. And then another project that I'm working on, it's in the works, is a is a book. Oh, okay. Yeah, just to give a hint, it will be more along lab quality, like the unknown partner in your healthcare, how clinical laboratories are evaluated and how to harness that information for your healthcare. And okay. then 
Um, out of the pandemic, there have been different movements, or I should correct myself, say it's not because of pandemic, but the pandemic accelerated certain things. And one of those that I'm building a relationship with are physicians who are called direct primary care physicians or DPC physicians. And they are primary care physicians. They're not concierge. They contract directly with the patient for the services and costs and therefore eliminate the involvement of health insurance companies and the layers of bureaucracy. And so they are a growing group of physicians that uh, like I said, I'm building a relationship with, and naturally it would be around lab quality. Sounds like you've got a lot going on then. Yes, I get around. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Uh, well, Dr. Stolis, this has been a really interesting conversation. Uh, I, I really appreciate uh, hearing more about, about you and about the things that you're doing and about uh, Blood Associates. And I'll of course, we'll have links in the show notes to all of the things, especially the, the uh, well, not especially, but including uh, the movie, which I'm definitely going to find. Oh, okay. Yeah, put a, put a little um, snapshot thumbnail of that in there. <laughs> yeah, I'll see what I can find for that. Okay. Dr. <laughs> Stephanie Stolis, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Dennis. Great big thanks to Dr. Stolis. Next week, I'll be talking with Kimberly Fiak, who is currently working on her PhD in pathology. Here's a short preview, and then I'll be back with some final comments on this episode. Yes, I know that sounds really crazy, um, <laughs> but that was, I don't know, it just sounded cool. Um, all the other colleges I applied to, I applied as a chemistry major, and uh -huh. this one I applied to as a neuroscience major. Now, as you were going along, did you ever um, kind of question that decision? No, not really. Um, my first, the summer before I started my freshman year of college, I had the honor of doing an internship a 10-week internship in a chronic pain lab. And I thought that work was really interesting. And then I got a neuropathology internship and I fell in love with the work that I was doing. And so it just always seemed to fit. And I never really questioned it after that. Okay, yeah, I want to talk about the neuropathology internship. So first of all, was this kind of your first experience with the field of pathology? Yes, it was. Um, I got to work in a lab that ran a brain and body donation program. So not only did I get to do the research side, I also got to experience some of the brain banking that led me to my interest in brain banking now. This interview was really a lot of fun, and I really enjoyed the kind of tangents that we went on a couple of times. And actually, the question that led to Dr. Stullis talking about how she you know, tried her hand at acting and got to meet Keanu Reeves and that whole story, that was actually her idea. She suggested that I include a question like that, and I think I'm going to start using something like that uh, from now on because I've noticed that a lot of us in pathology have kind of a creative or artistic side, and I, I think it'd be fun to explore that in the future. As for the movie that she was in, tune in tomorrow. I haven't been able to find it on any streaming service, uh, but it is available on Amazon. You can, you can buy the DVD if, if you'd like, so I'll leave a link for that. I did find the Hematogen chocolate bars that she mentioned, which is definitely not for me, but if you're up for the challenge, let me know what you, what you think of it. I'll have a link in the show notes for that, as well as everything else we talked about today. Don't forget, you can follow this show on Twitter at People of Path, or connect with me at LinkedIn, or just go to peopleofpathology.com, and all the links are there. 
Thank you for continuing to share the show with others, and together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.